Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Stuff you guys send me via email, uh, and so thank you. And some of you maybe don't need to send me an email every day, um, but thank you. Uh, I appreciate uh, the emails that you send, uh, thoughts that you're having. Uh, for those of you who think I should be talking about the retaliation tour, um, you'd be wrong. But thanks for your input. Uh, sometimes we we got to call each other out on those things. So let me just say that uh, today's a day of decision. Today is a day of decision. Are you going to be a retaliation tour person? Or are you going to be a go the second mile person? Retaliation tour or second mile? It's going to be one of the decisions that you are going to uh, have to make today. So in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, following the recitation of the Beatitudes and the declaration that his followers be the salt of the earth, Jesus teaches a series of lessons that begin, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And he's calling those who follow him to ways that are not of this world, literally ways that are out of this world. He's calling us to live on earth as if in heaven, that the world might catch a glimpse of what it looks like to be people who are literally not of this world, although we're still walking around in it. So to live as saints, to live as light. So listen to what Jesus says about retaliation and how we are to treat those whom we might be tempted to vilify as our enemies. So I'm picking up at the 38th verse of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other side also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, for those of you who know the context of all of this, there's a lot of cultural idiom um, in these passages of Scripture. So I certainly encourage you to study this passage in, in order that you might understand in context what Jesus was saying to the listeners of his day. In verse 42, uh, this one, you know, you can use in any context. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then we come to verse uh, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. For if you love those who love you, what, re- what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than everyone else? Don't even Gentiles do that? Jesus is calling us to a second mile love by calling us to himself and his ways. And indeed, his ways are not our ways. They're not the ways of this world, but they are the way of the Father, the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And so, yes, yes, I acknowledge few follow it, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't. 
So let us be found faithful today to be people of the way of Christ, even as the world goes its own way down a path that Jesus says leads to destruction. All right. In other news, today is National Make a Friend Day. Valentine's Day is this weekend. And the question that many people in the culture are asking is, is the force with you? Peter Kapsner on all of that next. All right, I'm blushing right now. I got a Valentine from a listener, Peter. You got a Valentine? This is like back to first and second grade, right? Where you bring Valentines for everybody. It totally just came over the text line. (laughs) What? You you, you can't read it? Oh, no, I can read it. Well, I don't know. Paul could read it. That might be, you know, might be more appropriate for someone other than me to read it. Paul, do you have the text line up? I have it up. Do yes. you see that cute little Valentine? I. Do you mean from, uh, I won't say his Vance? name. Okay. No. You said his Go name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen, your perspective is amazing, except one time on one point. From That's my point part. of view. You are That's such my favorite a, part. That is an awesome <laughs> text. Part. Oh my gosh, that was great. But he continues. Vance continues, you are such a blessing and the people... You interview, harvest, uh, are like fresh-cut flowers that you laboriously cultivate and bring to the farmer's market. And you and they fragrance the air, bring smiles to faces, attention to detail, warmth, love, and hope. Praises, I hope, to converse with you in heaven, if not before. I love that. That is remarkable. That is a great Valentine right there. That is a great Valentine. Yes, indeed. Oh, apparently Evan wants us to know it's Thomas Edison's birthday, the anniversary of his birthday. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, (laughs) uh, Scott wants to say thanks to Paul for the awesome bumper, living life upside down, because life sure feels that way. So there you go. That's yeah, outstanding. Okay. That is a great Peter, start to uh, this hour, Carmen. I, know, I love we, it. We've stomped all over your uh, all over your time. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's National Make a Friend Day, so uh, you know I'm I, I love that. Uh, let's jump to the conversation um, about Star Wars because unlike me, you actually know something about this: love, marriage, and Jedi. I'm just going to set you up with that. Apparently, Jedi Knights are not celibate. This would this would go into um, world a world conversation that I am not engaged in, but apparently one that many people are. So go ahead. Yeah, and and actually, Jedi Knights are meant to be celibate. This is quite a historic shift in in the canon of the Star Wars universe, and and so much so that uh, it, it, I was reflecting on a story that my oldest son Caleb and I have this permission to tell this story, but we have a longstanding tradition in my family that we start the Star Wars movies when they're ten years old, and and then we just start kind of rolling through them. And Caleb, when he was watching them at, at 10 years old, he loved them. I mean, the, the Star Wars universe became sort of interwoven with the actual universe, and it was hard to know where, where the real universe uh, began and Star Wars ended. And, and he really was just smitten and taken with the idea of becoming a Jedi Knight. But at the same time, he was, uh, there, was, there was this other 10-year-old girl who I think was very much interested in Star Wars, too. And, uh, and she took a bit of a love interest in my son, Caleb. And I, I want to say that she brought him a helium balloon 
And on the balloon, in sort of black marker Sharpie, she wrote this sort of long diatribe that ended with a proposal for marriage at the end of it. And I, my, my son was just stunned, flabbergasted by this idea that he might get married at the age of 10. And Carmen, he really thought about it for quite some time. And I, I think it was maybe two or three days later, he came back to her and he said, you know, Hannah, uh, I really appreciate the invitation to be married, but I've decided to become a Jedi Knight. And so he he had to turn down her marriage proposal at that time because he wanted to live a life uh, of being a Jedi Knight, which meant that he had to be celibate, uh, which meant that he couldn't have any attachments at all in this world. And and it meant that he had to sort of live his life on his own and dedicate to something else. And and part of the point of that story is that has is always been how Jedi Knights have been understood up until apparently this last week when the canon of the Star Wars universe changed and Jedi Knights no longer have to be celibate. And here's the point that I think has some really interesting parts of this conversation is the reason why is there was a belief or there is now a belief that you can engage in some kind of, uh, of intimate relationship with another person with no strings attached that there isn't actually any attachment because the danger for the Jedi Knight was that they would get attached to another person, thus compromising the, the decisions they have to make on behalf of the universe. And they would head down the dark side and all of these different kinds of things. Well, now the message is you can enter into a sexual relationship with somebody, but you can do so with absolutely no strings attached. And thus we can change the historic idea of the Jedi Knight where they can go ahead and they don't have to be celibate anymore. It's actually kind of interesting and a bit reflective of our culture. Uh, reflective of our culture is definitely one way to put that. The uh, the idea that you could have these, I don't know, uh, one night stands, right. but not actual relationships. No, no commitment. No, I mean the the word I think would be possessive relationship. But that's even. I mean, no, as Christians, I don't think of marriage as a possessive relationship. Absolutely not. It's it's a one flesh relationship, right? We're just we're mm-hmm. talking about this literally, uh, actually. Tuesday of this week and now this morning in about an hour, we're going to jump into it again in my sexuality class. And we're going to be exploring what Paul meant when he said, don't become one flesh with a prostitute or the two shall become one flesh. And all of the language of the one flesh relationship is that whatever your intention is around sexuality doesn't change how God created sexuality. We can't change the reality of something just because of our intention or our belief about it. So we can't change what the one flesh relationship is simply because we believe there isn't an attachment to be in a one flesh relationship with somebody. uh, Paul describes it as a great mystery because there is something going on beyond just the physical interchange between two people. I've always been captured by a quote. uh, Friedrich Brunner is the name of the the scholar who wrote a book on uh, commentary in the book of Matthew. And Jesus is talking in Matthew 19 about what it means to the two shall become one flesh. And he says, that the physical union in that, that happens in this world results in a metaphysical community or something beyond the physical where your emotions and your spirituality and, and your relationality and all of it is getting interwoven together. That is the beautiful intention of the covenant that is reflected, uh, uh, reflective of God's covenant with his people as well. You can't change it. Just because you say there isn't an attachment doesn't mean suddenly there isn't an attachment. It's it, There is meant to be this beautiful interweaving of two people on every possible level. And, and boy, have we lost that, have we not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, you and I have to talk about chalky candy hearts when we come back from the break. But you got a Valentine on the text line as well. Oh, this is so exciting. Uh, this, is, this is actually evidence that a Valentine sent to one person 
can also be a, a backhanded non-Valentine to another person. Mm-hmm. There <laughs> so you go. I can't see the text line, so Paul's going to have to mm, read it. I'm, I'm gonna, so no, no, interested. I'm in reading this. this one to you. Okay, excellent. I, I, yes, because so Jennifer, we we got your we got your Valentine. Happy Valentine's Day, Peter. I really like when you are on the radio with or without Carmen. Wow, Carmen! I think that that's probably not the the inflection in her voice, but you <laughs> can't I'm read tone and text, of Carmen. The Valentine, and Indeed. so there you go. She <laughs> Thank also, you, Jennifer. By the way, sent you a variety of chocolates in her text. This is a, so a exciting. Variety. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. dark light mm-hmm. caramel milk, all of that. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. take it all. Mm-hmm. Thank you, We're Jennifer. We're going to talk about chalky candy hearts next. We'll be right back. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner because he alone has the credentials to weigh in on the meaning, the real meaning behind the messages printed on conversational hearts, particularly those that are out this year, because uh, now that the first company to print these has been shut down, lots of other people are now in the business, in the game, and those conversational hearts now say all kinds of things. Um, Also, our ability to apparently... Print messages on tiny little chalky heart candy um, has improved to the point that you can put full sentences on those little candy hearts. Did you know that? I did not know that. What font size would that be? A font size like one to try I to get know, a whole message I'm looking on there? At a, I'm looking at a candy heart right now that says, let's go furniture shopping. <laughs> I'm looking at one that says, uh, let's, uh, let's do the thing I allegedly did. Wow. Uh, I'm reading one that says... Uh, Oh yeah, see some of these are just terrible. I can't right? imagine that they're they're terribly edifying <gasps> oh, on, on my these candy goodness. hearts. Yes. yes. Um yes, in fact some of those I just am going to have to skip over. How about this group, which uh looks to me like um maybe a Christian thought they would print up some candy hearts. If you were going to print up some candy hearts, Peter what might be some messages you would print on them? Oh, boy. That, I, I have never thought about that question before, Carmen. And, and, and real love. Real, real love would be good. And and then there's a Bible verse reference. See, I think we could do a little sort of short clip to maybe passages of Scripture on there, right? That would be one thing that we could do. And and, and if we've opened Holy up... Holy kisses only. <laughs> and, well, in a COVID era, mm-hmm. that we might not be able to practice the, the Holy Kiss uh, on that. But boy, I'm all his. So what happened here? The candy the candy factory shut down, and that just created space. They must have had intellectual property of some kind. That then once they once they went, I bankrupt. think you could probably print anything other than like "Be Mine." I mean, they might still have the corner That's on the "Be true. Mine" market. Yeah, yeah. But uh, right. So um, I'm going to give you some uh, some of these and let you do a little uh, Christian riffing. So okay, let's great. let's say you were to uh, receive, give or receive the "Be Mine" chalky candy heart. What might be the um, Jesus slapdown version of that? The Jesus slapdown version of Be Mine? Are you, are you talking in a romantic relationship? Because that was no, the one you I'm sort of set that, aside, you know, for, uh, for your girlfriend, ooh. boyfriend when you were seven or eight. Oh, oh, talk about that. Well, I just, I, yeah, I think that your heart's kind of actually, I mean, there, think about all, you must have had some crushes, Carmen, when you were seven and eight, nine years old. Charlie you, Craig, fifth grade. Charlie Craig. See, Charlie Craig He's would have been. Here's, the, here's what I'm totally confident of right now. Charlie Craig is not listening to this show. Well, that's, I think, <laughs> that's fair. And, and I don't know how Jim would feel about Charlie Craig, even to this day. You knows know. all about Charlie Craig. Okay, good. So, and so you have these crushes, right? Like, what does that, what does that speak to? It does actually speak to a bit of a longing to be in a relationship, even at early ages like that. And we are just talking again with my young people this last week that they live in a really awkward time and space where 
back in, in Jesus's day, people were getting married arranged by the community at the ages of 13, 14, 15, 16. I am in no way advocating that we go back to that practice. But what they recognized is that they they were on a bigger journey together. Their Their relationship was to look outward together. And they were meant to be each other's uh, for a lifetime in that way. But they were participating in the community. People now, they're trying to find some sort of love interest uh, through maybe some sort of Tinder app at the ages of 18, 19, 20, 21. And boy, oh boy, it's so different and they're so confused. So I, I think there's something sweet about the idea that at early ages, we begin to teach our kids what it is that their relationship with another human being in the context of one flesh covenant marriage is meant to be. So if, if we can somehow do that in, in candy hearts, like how would you do that without being overly theological? How, how would you bring a seven or eight year old along into this stuff and not introduce them to, to these ideas at the ages of 15. So Carmen, you must have a reference for that. Hmm. Um, so one of the things that I like to do is, is sort out the, uh, the little heart candies and then like line them up on people's placemats in the right. lead up to, to Valentine's day and then talk about what they say. So, um, I love you or love or hugs or hug me. Um, uh, those kinds of things. The XO one, I like to talk about the XO one. See, that creates um, space for conversation, right? Right. Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. Christ. What is it? What is it? You know, from a military family, the XO is the second in command, but certainly the one um, under whose authority I'm living. So what does it look like for Jesus to be my XO? Maybe second in command to God the Father, kind of like you can have that conversation, certainly in command of my life. You see the opportunities, I think. Um well, and it, I think it, you know it just, opens the opportunity, yeah, as well to talk about sort of appropriate and inappropriate touch. Well, I think the it hug, does too. The hug yeah. me thing in school is is like a, a big no no. Oh, and we would have done, you know, we, the hugs were no problem growing up, and I understand why we went away from that, just because of the abuse situations associated with it. But I think it also creates space, Carmen, to uh, maybe op- not at an early age, but open up and talk about the book of the song, uh, Song of Solomon. That is very mm. much a, an incredibly beautifully romantic book. It gives us a great picture of the pursuit. Right. Between two people that have there's different versions of love in the biblical text. There's the agape self-sacrificing love. There's the ahava, which is the tender hearted, passionate love. There is the hesed, which is the never forsaking love. But but eros love is a love in the text as well, along with filio. Filio is a, about a friendship love. But eros is this deep, beautiful, romantic love that we see in the Song of Solomon between these two people back and forth in the pursuit that's there, it clearly is also a reflection of who God is and desires this sort of deep, intimate, one relationship with us as his people. So I think actually you can begin to talk about God's love in the midst of this as well with all of these candy hearts and say, hey, look, God isn't turning away in heaven when people have arrows for one another. this This is part of the fabric of how he's created things, this beautiful pursuit back and forth. So I think there's a lot of different space. Now you have to make it kid friendly, right? At the end of the day. But I think you can actually talk about God's love for his children through some of these different hearts in the different versions of God's love in the biblical text. All right. I'm, I'm Googling right now. I don't know that anyone is printing the, uh, the Greek, all the Greek words for love on Candy Hearts. Wouldn't that be so great? We can do the five words there. Yes. There you go. There's a little entrepreneurial opportunity for you or get out a tiny little marker today and just start. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to eat it after after oh. sharpening up my heart. I probably wouldn't eat it oh. at that point, but you could. Oh, yeah, you could use those five words. It's beautiful. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a good idea. All right. I um, Maybe I'll do that on my Valentine's. Maybe I'll write the, uh, depending on the person, 
right use the use the greek uh word that is appropriately related to them uh, you, like you really could do filio and you could do eros yeah, for jim totally. right at the same and then agape oh, yeah. for anybody would work and ahava would yeah. as well so there's lots of different words there I love it. All right. Hey, that's a nice And we landed on a good idea. Maybe this time next year you and I will be in the chalky candy business. Chalky candy business and all of our uh, conversation hearts will have Greek references. (laughs) I like it. I think that's a winner. There's a really big market for that. There's going to be a huge niche for that, indeed. Huge, huge niche. Okay. Uh, Peter, happy Valentine's Day. Blessings uh, on you, my brother in Christ, my friend. Uh, Love to you and yours. Yeah, you too, Carmen. Thanks. All right. We'll be right back. There are a lot of uh, people walking in darkness, and there are Christians walking in the shadows. Um, and God is present in the midst of all of that. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And we need to reclaim that reality and that truth. So Tish Harrison Warren is going to join me next. Her book is Prayer in the Night. For those who work or watch or weep, and we're going to talk about trusting God, even when things feel dark. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Listen to the question God asked Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. This is Max Licato. One question would have been enough for Job, but it isn't enough for God. Questions rush forth. They splatter in the chambers of God's heart with a wildness and a beauty and a terror that leaves every Job who had ever lived drenched and speechless, watching the Master redefine who's who in the universe. God's questions to Job aren't intended to teach. They are intended to stun. They aren't intended to stir the mind. They are intended to bend his knees. I owe no one anything, God declares in the crescendo of the wind. Everything under the heaven is mine. Job couldn't argue. God owed no one anything, no explanations, no excuses, which makes the fact that he gave us everything even more astounding. This is Max Lucado. We often think of crossover artists in terms of music, either people who start out in, you know, an overtly Christian musical context and have crossover appeal in a mainstream market, or those who start out as obviously mainstream artists who whose content is so overtly Christian um, that Christians take note of what they're doing out there in, in a more secular context. Um, I want to introduce you today, if you do not know her already, to um, to Tish Harrison Warren. Um, she's a crossover artist of a different kind. Um, she has crossover appeal from the Anglican Church in North America to the widestream or mainstream culture. Her articles and essays have appeared in places uh, like the New York Times. She is the 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year award winner for her Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life. And she's joining us today um, with her brand new book, which I just, it's going to have real crossover appeal. And that's strange to say because it's its based in something so Anglican. A prayer in the night for those who work or watch 
or weep. Tish, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. So um, this is a, uh, there's some crossover art happening in this book. Talk with us about um, the sermon you heard uh, at a point in time um, on the Sunday following the drowning of a little boy in your congregation. And the question that I think is at the heart of all of this, how can we trust God in the night? Yeah. Yeah. So the, that sermon in particular that I bring up, it wasn't when I was in college, um, I was, I had, there was this tragedy right in our, in our church and, um, we were all struggling and, and a few months after my pastor Hunter, who's brilliant, um, mentor and, uh, amazing guy, he was preaching a sermon and he said in the sermon, um, we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us. That's not what God promises. So the, I say in the book, like, of course, God does keep many bad things from happening, right? Like we, we've lived to see another day today, but we can't trust God to keep all bad things from happening, which was Hunter's point. And, and I knew that, I knew that on some level, but I, it's one of those things that, um, I, 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 hadn't heard said out loud and it felt like we were saying something wrong. It felt like we were doing something wrong to even admit this. And so the question that I ask in the book that I sort of keep coming back to is if, if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us or to those we love, how do we trust God? And so that's sort of the central sort of wrestling that I'm doing in in this book. So the book again is prayer in the night um, talk with us about the prayer in the night, because for those uh, of us who maybe um, come out of traditions that are not particularly liturgical, uh, who are not familiar with the ordinary practices uh, of the rhythms of prayer that are practiced in Anglicanism um, and elsewhere, talk with us about the prayer sort of in which this conversation is birthed. Yeah, so it's called prayer in the night um, for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I talk a lot about the practice of Compline, which is um, in the Anglican tradition that I'm an Anglican priest, as you said, we um, have four different prayer offices or prayer times in the day. And Compline is the last prayers of the day. It's, it's the prayers we pray right before we sleep. Usually, you know, it's dark outside. Um, and there are these beautiful prayers. And, and the church is really, we have evidence from the third century and probably before that Christians prayed deep into the night, often rising at midnight and praying in the middle of the night. So I take one prayer out of that, um, that set of prayers and each, um, and it's called the keep watch your Lord prayer. It begins, keep watch your Lord with those who work or watch or weep. And then it goes on, but I won't say the whole thing because of time. And um, every chapter is about one um, phrase in that prayer. So I sort of use that prayer as a way to kind of um, get a structure to sort of get down into these deeper questions of where is God in the midst of darkness? Where is God um, when we're suffering? 
how, how can we trust God? What do we do with grief? How do we stay in the Christian faith when we have doubts? These kinds of questions. But I use that prayer partly because of my own life. Um, the book begins in 2017, which was just a hard year for me. We, I moved. Um, the week after I moved, my father passed away. I had two miscarriages in the span of about six months. So I was just spiritually exhausted and prayer became really difficult for me and nighttime became difficult. I would get busy during the day and kind of keep going, but that empty slowing down, that space at night would raise grief and anxiety and questions. And so nighttime became really hard and I and I talk more about that in the book. But slowly after a lot of watching Netflix and going to distraction and being, you know, on Twitter too often, I would come back to this nighttime prayer. And it was sort of my way back into prayer and back into faith again. I'm, uh, I'm remembering back to seminary, and I was going to say that it was Simone Weil, but I, but I don't know. You might know better uh, than me. Um, there's, a, there's a woman um, who prayed through the Lord's Prayer in much the same way that you are offering this um, in terms of line by line, really intimate reflection um, in terms of prayer. Just um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm loving the approach. Um, and I'm also just loving, uh, Tish, how vulnerable you are in the pages uh, of this book. You take us into, um, you know, into the reality that uh, that prayer can can grow weary or we can grow weary in our prayer. Um, you take us into the, the realities of tragedy and um, grief and the the faithfulness of God in the midst of it all. I am talking with Tish Harrison Warren. We are talking today about her new book, Prayer in the Night, for those who work or watch or weep. And yes, I have complimentary copies to give away. If you'd like to enter that drawing, go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. Tish and I will be right back. Another sleepless night, I'm turning in my bed. Long before the red sun rises. Talking with... Uh, Tish Harrison Warren about her book, Prayer in the Night. Uh, and yes, we are giving away copies today. If you'd like to enter that drawing, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, you talk in the book, uh, Tish, about the role of silence. Uh, I, I note that we live in a world that is saturated with shouting. Um, so let's talk about, you know, how you have met God in, in silence uh, and what, what role silence can play when we're feeling overwhelmed or broken or in a season of grief. Yeah. Well, in general, um, the book uh, walks through this prayer. So it's, it's, like a, it's not a real linear explanation of different ways of prayer, but I do bring up all different kinds of prayer practices in it. And mm -hmm. partly there was a time in my life, I mean, when I was probably in college, uh, I, I didn't grow up in any kind of liturgical tradition or anything like that. And I didn't realize there were different ways to pray. That whole idea would have, I, I mean, prayer meant one thing, which was sort of talking to God about my thoughts and feelings. And, and that's a great way to pray. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I pray that way every day. But I had no idea of sort of a broader um, practices of prayer in the church and one of those is prayers of silence. And I just think I had no concept of, 
of, of what it meant to pray, to tune, to like open oneself to the presence of God in silence or to, to meditate in silence on a particular psalm or, um, and so I talk in the book about, um, weariness and our experience of weariness when, um, when our, you know, um, not just our bodies are tired, but our kind of our souls are tired where we feel sort of, um, flattened. Uh, I think a lot of people have experienced weariness in this past year and, um, that I, I began to sort of lean into ways of prayer that didn't rely so much on me, like ginning up a particular emotion or um, even words, but um, began to lean into silence and space for silence. And um, I, I talk about the book, uh, to be clear, is not, it's not a book just for folks who've like experienced, you know, catastrophic tragedy, although the people who are in tragedy are welcome to read it. But I mean, my, my life has been pretty good. Like this is not my, I have suffered, but it's been sort of ordinary suffering. So this is about the kind of grief that all of us walk through, um, whatever your life looks like. This is the kind of grief that, uh, I say that grief is just part of what it means to live in a world that's, uh, where we've experienced the fall. So, what I have found is that in these times of silence, so many people I know um, begin to cry because there's all of this sort of um, this, there's these um, sadnesses and sorrows and, and loss and, and questions that we really don't address. We don't work through and we we can tend to get really busy. We can tend to move forward, keep working. Um, and there's there's this grief. And in those times when we let ourselves kind of be silent before God. Um, the Holy Spirit brings things up and brings brings things up that we need to face, but also places I think where God really wants to meet us. Um, so silence, I mean, I don't want to oversell it. Sometimes it's boring. Sometimes you think, wait, what is it? Did anything even happen there? But I, but I think that God is at work. And then, like you said, the world is very noisy. And so, um, uh, so much of our Christian life is learning to pay attention, right? To pay attention to the things of God. So I love, um, well, I loved, <clears throat> I love the book. Um, but part three uh, starts with give your angels charge over those who sleep. And this, um, what you share at the opening of that is so sweet. It's so, um, it's so personal. And I learned something. So talk with us about putting a baby to sleep. Talk with us about inviting angels to um, provide watch care for those who sleep. And, um, and then introduce the audience, uh, because this word was new for me, and I grew up, well, I came out of a Presbyterian tradition, so I had never heard the word presbytera, and I certainly didn't know it meant the priest's wife. So there you go. Talk with us, uh, talk with us about angels and putting a baby to sleep, because that's yeah. provocative. Yeah, so I say in this chapter uh, that um, this is a line in the prayer that says, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. And I talk about how there was a long time where I, I just sort of just literally never thought about angels. Uh, it's not so much that I like st 
didn't believe in them or made some conscious decision that I no longer believes in angels. I just sort of forgot about them. I, I was I was also in a Presbyterian church for a long time. I wasn't in kind of a cares. I know there's many churches that talk about angels and demons a lot. That was not my context. So I just sort of um, didn't think about them for a long time. And all of the, you know, cultural kind of um, expressions of angels tend to be like, comical, right? Or cheesy or trite. Um, so I just never, I, they just, I just didn't think about, um, this, these real, uh, in scripture, frightening at times, like powerful beings, um, ever. And I talk about how, um, what that I had an empty cosmos. I mean, I believed in God, but there was the, the notion of sort of a ch- enchant enchanted universe, um, full of spiritual things just wasn't very real to me. And, um, when I had my first child, I, there was this, um, Greek Orthodox bookstore that I would go to. It was a cafe and I would go there to drink coffee and, and, um, you know, work, um, on campus. And it was run by a Greek Orthodox priest and his wife who everybody called her Presbytera, which is means like priest wife, but as you said, but it was just what, it was like her name. I don't actually know what her, her like given name was. Everyone called her Presbytera. And, um, she just, she, I was pregnant. And so she, um, we we just kind of had a we got a, a slight relationship for me coming in and having coffee and chili a lot and um, working there. And she just gave me an icon one day of an angel. And without a lot of thought, I, I didn't think much about it. But on when we were setting up the baby's nursery, I put um, this picture of an angel on on the wall with a just a little thumbtack. It was small. And um, then I just caught myself about six months later with this several, you know, this probably four month old baby, um, praying each night that God would put angels around my, my child. And I talk in the book about how, um, it was like through prayer and through my deep love for my daughter and the, you know, I don't, if you've ever put a baby to sleep at night, you have this a strong sense of the vulnerability of the world mm-hmm. uh, that, that it was just like this belief kind of bubbled up in me without me noticing. It was like sometime in the course of that six months with that angel on the wall, I began praying that God would put his angels around my daughter and just noticing that I was curious about it one night, like, huh, I started you know, talking to God about angels, that's a new thing. And so I, I just talk in the book about how prayer kind of, first of all, I think we can sometimes think we come, we believe things and out of those beliefs we pray, which is in part, of course, true. But I also talk about how prayer kind of works back on us. It shapes us and it shapes our belief. So even though I didn't like read a book on angels or, you know, take an apologetics course on spiritual life, it was like this practice of prayer began to sort of grow in me space, imagination for um, a world that's that's drenched with the presence of God, but also the presence of of, of spiritual beings. And so, um, so I talk in the book about 
how, um, you know, for almost all of history and certainly church history, it was such a profound idea of what what I call an enchanted cosmos or a crowded cosmos um, mm-hmm. that the world is um, spiritual and and we of course we we're Christians we believe the world is spiritual but just living life kind of strips us I think without thinking of Absolutely. it absolutely. And makes us sort of only focused on the material world, what's imminent, what's right here. So prayer always is this kind of ushering into the supernatural life and supernatural reality. And it's um, if you're like me and live in a city and run educated folks, it can be it's um, <laughs> it's weird, right? Like I say in the book, <laughs> like Christians. Um, however respectable we want to kind of dress it up, like at the end of the day, we We're believe, weird. yeah, we believe some weird stuff, um, yeah. com- like at least in the eyes of our neighbors. And that's exactly so, right. um, prayer kind of trains us. Um, I talk about it in the book that it, it's like our pupils dilating to see light in the dark, that tra- prayer kind of dilates our eyes, cha- changes our visions to see God. Right. More of God yeah. at work. And um, it's well and, and, and right, praying and praying in the dark. Um, right. Is uh, you really need a dilated pupil uh, because sometimes seeing the light is um, is hard. Trish, uh, Tish, we got to leave it. Um, we got to leave it right there. The book is a delight. Prayer in the night for those who work or watch or weep. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the books we have here in studio, text the word book to 877-933-2484. And we're going to conclude with this. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. Friends, go forth uh, to love and serve the Lord in this day. Be blessed. We'll see you right back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.